0: Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. We finished Hebrews 9, so that means inexorably we're in Hebrews 10. So let me get a run at it. I'm going to actually pick it up back in 9.23 and just read through, and then I'll pick it up in... Chapter 10, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A couple of things going on here. We talked last time about the fact that heaven is not part of the creation and that time doesn't run in heaven in the same way it runs here apparently. So the sacrifice of Messiah where he sprinkles his blood in the heavenly place covers sin from Adam to whoever the last guy is before they roll the planet up. We talked last time that if that's not the case then His sacrifice really only covers sins prior to His death. And the example I used was if you were to decide that you were going to do some sins next week but you had a full schedule so you grabbed a lamb and went in and sacrificed it on Friday because you had some sins to do on Monday your sacrifice wouldn't be acceptable. So the idea of Messiah's sacrifice covering sins that have not yet occurred only works if he's outside of time. This is essentially what's being said there. Chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, They would not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I want to unpack that and cast some aspersions on whoever's writing this. First off, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's true. We've all studied Torah. And we all understand that there are no sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle that handles willful sin. They're all for unintentional sin, and most of them are for sins with respect to Israel's relationship to the tabernacle. So the statement that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin is correct. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. His comment, however, that if the sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle had been able to cleanse the worshipers of sin, they would have ceased to be been offered. I don't think that's sound. Now, who am I to argue with Paul, right? Because every year you have new people born. So yes, you may cleanse a particular set of worshipers, but every year you have a new crop of people coming up. So the idea that you can just Simonize one generation and have it be done forever leads me to believe and where I'm going with this is Paul is making an argument with respect to something to some group of people. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. And that argument is not, I don't believe, intended to be logically airtight and exclusive, it's intended to be persuasive. In other words, he's writing a letter to persuade. He is not writing an engineering manual where you have to have everything covered. As we go on here, he's going to make some fairly hyperbolic statements. I take those to be in the spirit of I am writing to a group of Hebrews who has endured persecution and is sort of wondering... Is this the Messiah? You know, sort of like remember when John was in prison and he sent one of his disciples to Yeshua and said, Are you the guy or do we look for somebody else? I sort of get the impression that this letter may be in the same spirit because there's a lot of chastisement and bucking up going on in the letter. As I say, the argument that I just made that assuming you have a body of worshipers that has been cleansed from sin by the temple sacrifice, that means that the sacrifices are no longer necessary. I don't believe logically follows in an engineering sense. Oh, one other thing, by the way. Back up in verse one. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. We've talked about this lots and lots of times the first point i made earlier is that the sacrifices under the torah in the tabernacle are not intended to deal with willful sin that's sort of thing one thing two which we've talked about also is the torah written on tablets of stone is out of place that's not where it's intended to be written the torah is intended to be written on the human heart at the foot of sinai what god attempted to do is write his word on the heart of Israel, his bride, and the bride said, stop. If we hear God speak anymore, we'll die. Moses, you go find out what he's got to say. Come back to us and we'll do what you say. So absolutely, the Torah written on tablets of stone is but a shadow of what's intended. What the writer of Hebrews, Paul here, is saying is the law written on tablets of stone is a shadow of the good things to come, which is the Torah written on the human heart where it's intended to be written. The other thing that I've, we've said many, many times before, and I will reiterate so that it gets on this particular tape because people tend to forget it, is the content of the law written on the human heart is no different than the content of the law written on the stones. The words... God's rules, his laws, his instructions do not change. The only thing that changes in the New Covenant is the location where they are recorded. Tablets of stone, which are a metaphor for hearts of stone, or hearts of flesh, which is where he intends to have them originally. But the thing that's written there is no different in either case. And again, one of the reasons I'm I'm saying that is a lot of the Sunday church is of the opinion that the content of the Torah changed. When Messiah came, he did away with all that, and all that old law stuff is replaced by grace. That's not true. Grace was always there. It was there from Adam on forward. I mean, God's grace is not something that is new and unique with Yeshua. The substance of his Torah doesn't change either. One of the problems with Hebrews is, there's lots of people in the Sunday church that read it in ways that I think are not correct. All the way down to verse 5. Consequently, when the Messiah came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7. And this is a psalm of David. David is in one of his periods of difficulty, which David is in often. And he is crying out to God for deliverance. So I'm going to read Psalm 40, starting in verse 6 and going down through verse 10. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Notice there's a difference between Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, sacrifice is an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And here, in the original psalm, in sacrifice is an offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So what David is saying here is, I'm in trouble. I need to be delivered. And, oh, by the way, and this is Johnnyology, this is Delivering me does not require sacrifices, and you know that I will sing the praises of your deliverance to everybody, and I will not keep it a secret. So, back to Hebrews verse 8. What he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That's going to take some explanation. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua Messiah once for all. What he's saying here in the context of what I've been saying earlier, what God wants from us is not necessarily sacrifices and burnt offerings. What he wants is a willingness to do what he wants us to do. Yeshua, by coming and agreeing to do the will of the Father, has done away with the sacrifices and offerings part. Yeshua coming into the world could have come in to do sacrifices and offerings, just like everybody else did. Instead, what he did is he came in to do the will of God. And by doing that will, which is what God has originally desired, he did away with the necessity for sacrifices and offerings. This has got to be written by Paul. Only Paul writes stuff like that. So all the way down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And again, we've talked about that before. But when Messiah had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. What he's saying is, the single sacrifice of Messiah covers all sin. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The idea there is their title, if you will, in an inheritance has been perfected, which is to say they have the inheritance we've talked about that before in the context of ephesians where it says that the inheritance that we are to expect we don't have now but we have an earnest that we will have it and that earnest is the holy spirit what we're talking about here is a sacrifice for willful sin that's what yeshua covers there are sacrifices of thanksgiving there are peace offerings there are burnt offerings So there's lots and lots of sacrifices that take place. Furthermore, there is the commanded twice daily sacrifice. That's written down in the Torah. Twice a day, there'll be a lamb sacrifice. I, I expect that all of those will resume. And many in the Sunday church will regard that as blasphemous. I don't at all, because I see the axis as being different. You have the axis of intentional sin, a vertical and then unintentional sin is horizontal. And the fact that this one is complete doesn't have anything to do with this one because they're not for the same purpose and they're not in the same venue and they're not by the same priesthood. I don't see any either substantive or procedural conflict between the tabernacle sacrifices and Yeshua's sacrifice. That's why we have three different orders of priesthood, three different venues, and they handle three different matters. The example I always use is our court systems are intended to function that way. you got the county court where you deal with drunk driving and all the general stuff that people get involved in. Then you have a state court which has a different jurisdiction and a different brief. And then finally you have the federal courts, etc. And, and it's the same thing, I believe, with Yeshua and the tabernacle. Verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And again, this is from Jeremiah 31, and we've already discussed that, so I'm just going to skate right along unless somebody has a question. Verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is a forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What we're talking about here, I believe, is willful sin. In verse 18, there's an emphasis on the word where. In other words, in the place where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The place where the forgiveness is, is in heaven, and there will be no more sacrifices in heaven for sin. That makes perfect sense to me. That doesn't, however, mean that there won't be sacrifices in the venue of the earthly temple when that kicks back up again. Verse 19, We're going to go into hope and faith when we get down to chapter 11. We should get there tonight. But what he's saying is that all these things that he's listed, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that's sprinkled with what? Yeshua's blood. And our body's washed with pure water. In other words, you have a sprinkling with blood and then you have a washing with water. Then let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The fact that he who did the promise is faithful is the thing that lets us hold fast to our confession. 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Take just a moment here. This idea of gathering together, one of the things that the body of Messiah has and I don't know this to be a fact but it seems to me messianics are more prone to it than others is this idea of nobody thinks the way I think which is to say nobody else is right and so I'm not going to go to that church because they don't believe just exactly the way I believe and I'm going to stay home and I'm going to study the scriptures for myself Lower range of strategy. I will gently suggest that that is an error. Thank God nobody thinks like I think. Somebody did, they wouldn't need two of us, right? God wouldn't need two of us if somebody else was thinking just like I think. And the idea that you're going to be among people who rub you the wrong way, that just goes with being human. If you isolate yourself, what you wind up doing is you wind up following some rabbit trail down the rabbit hole, and you never come out again. You know, you'll get some little thing that you found in Scripture, and you think, ah, this is the thing that nobody else understands, and you follow that thing down the rabbit hole, and the next thing you know, you're gone. Being in a fellowship, what happens is somebody will come knock the corners off you. And that's a good thing, because none of us is able to do this alone. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. People get all wrapped around the axle on this one. Does that mean that once you hear the gospel, if you sin, it's all over? No, that isn't what it means. What it's going to be talking about is basically once you have received the knowledge of the truth, if you turn your back on it, He's not talking about garden variety sin that we all do. One hopes that as you realize it and you're ashamed of it, you repent and and turn from it. But I've said in other contexts that you're supposed to become like Messiah. Well, there's a dirty little secret. You're not going to make it. You can try all you want to be like Messiah, and you're not going to get there. The only thing that's going to finally get you there is when God does heart surgery and replaces your stony heart and writes the Torah on your heart. So the fact that you sin is certainly something that you should address and correct, but it is not something that you should be terrified over. And there are people that get that way, and that's not good. Short of having the Torah written on our heart, I don't think we're perfectible. And by the way, that's by design. It's not a flaw. The problems that we have with sin on one side are a necessary accompaniment or consequence to the good stuff we have on the other side. 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I will gently suggest to you that is not common, ordinary, garden-variety sin such as we are all subject to. When you spurn the Son of God, profane the blood of the covenant, and outrage the Holy Ghost, I mean, you, you got to work at that. And that's what he's talking about, is somebody who's working at it. And we have people who are working at it. I'm sure you all know them. Probably not among your acquaintances, but you know of them. 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boy, I agree with that. 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So again this goes back to the comment I made at the beginning of the hour that this letter is by way of correction, exhortation, bucking them up and he's Buffeted them around, and now he's coming back and and reminding them of the affliction that they have gone through as a result of their faith, and he's now encouraging them. 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had, had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The covenant has been sealed. The promise has been made. The promise is sure. We do not have possession of it. The metaphor that Ray uses is we've bought a house, we've put down our earnest money, we've signed a contract, the contract has been accepted, but we have not yet moved in. We have not taken possession. The contract, if you will, that we have in our hot little hands that assures us that at the day of closing, we will be able to take possession, that's the Holy Spirit. He's our earnest. He's our marker. He's our contract that we that we will receive the inheritance which is promised. 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And I believe that's from Hey uh, guy. The idea here is he is saying you all have been sanctified. You all have the Holy Spirit. You all have been washed in the blood of Messiah. However, you're still living in this world, and there's still going to be trials and tribulations to come. If you shrink back from that, God will have no pleasure in you. So this is again by way of encouragement and bucking them up. Thirty nine. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. On to 11 now. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the roll call of faith, if you will. And what he's saying here is, if you have a thing, you don't need faith. I have this microphone stand in my hand. I don't have to have any degree of faith whatsoever that I will someday get a microphone stand because I have one. It's right here. I got it. No faith involved. But if Larry here were to come and tell me, John, on Shabbat, I'm going to deliver you a microphone stand. If I believe Larry, then I have faith that Larry will get me that microphone stand. But right now I have the microphone stand, so faith is not involved. So faith is something that is with relation to something you don't have or can't see. Because if you have it, or you can see it, or it's tangible, then it's no longer faith. Again, there's nothing wrong with having something, it's just a different mechanism, it's not faith. The other thing that we've said many times, and I'll say again, is faith is the thing that brings the expected result to pass. And I've said this in the context of fear and faith are twins. They are flip sides of the same coin. The mechanism that your soul and spirit use when they're operating in either fear or faith are the same mechanism. If you are operating in fear, you will attract the things that you fear. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, the thing I really dreaded came to pass? Very common phenomenon, because fear is the negative side of faith. So if there's something that you're constantly fearful about, what you're doing is you're attracting it to you. Similarly, faith is the positive side of that. So if you have steadfast faith that something is going to happen, you know, based on the promises of God, what you're then doing is you are attracting those things to you. I'm going to read this once again in English Standard, and then I'm going to switch translations. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The way that translation goes, it's all mental. If you switch over to King Jimmy, now faith is the substance of, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the idea here that I've been talking about is either fear or faith, either one, will cause things to come out of the spiritual and into the physical. If it's something you're afraid of, then the thing that you fear will come out of the spiritual and into the physical and it'll happen. If it's faith that you're talking about, then the thing that you have faith for will come out of the spiritual and into the physical. To sort of go off script here for a second, Paul also says faith comes by hearing. hearing. So one of the ways that you can work on your faith is you can speak the Word of God into your situation. And I don't mean think the Word of God, I mean speak it out loud. Because when you speak something, it goes out of your mouth and whips around your head two or three times and goes back into your ears. Your voice carries authority with you. So one of the ways that you can keep your faith operating the way it's supposed to is in your prayers and driving down the road. Talk to yourself about the things that you are trusting God for. And as you speak those things, it will reinforce your faith. And the faith will attract the things that you are hoping for. Verse 2, For by it, it being faith, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now again, that's sort of what I've just been saying. There there is no lack in the spirit. Everything that's necessary is there. Because all of the physical stuff was created by the word of God from the spiritual stuff. In other words, the physical stuff that we can see, touch, hear, taste, and feel is a creation of something that didn't exist before God spoke it into existence. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through faith, though he died, he still speaks. The fact that Abel died is unremarkable. Everybody in that generation died. They're all dead. Every one of them. So the fact that he's dead is no big deal. The fact that he is still speaking through his actions, that is a big deal. Moses is dead, but he still speaks to us through his words that he wrote down in the Torah. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Again, the idea is if you want to draw near to God, first thing you've got to do, of course, believe he he exists. I mean, that's almost a tautology. But the second thing you've got to believe is his character. And his character is that he rewards those who seek him. And if you believe that, then it works and you can draw near. Verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm not sure what's being said there, quite frankly. By this he condemned the world. One way you can look at it is if Noah had not built an ark, there would have been no flood because nobody would have made it through. So in the sense, in that sense, building the ark is the thing that condemned the existing world then. In other words, as soon as the escape pod was complete, it was safe to destroy the spaceship. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is his faith, by contrast, was condemning the world around him. And I have no idea which way is meant. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. As as I read this, something just occurred to me. And it makes you wonder if Abraham was not always a nomad. It's entirely possible that Abram, which is what he was called then, lived in town, had a condominium with a swimming pool, two-car garage. The thought just occurred to me. It had never occurred to me before, but all the stories you see of Abraham, he's a nomad. And I'm sort of wondering if that was part of his act of faith, going out and living in tents when before he had lived in a building. Just a random thought. I don't I don't know what you do with that, but it just occurred to me. So verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the idea here is, carrying on with my previous little speculation, he comes and he lives in a place that's promised to him, but which he does not own. Remember, the only piece of ground that Abraham ever actually owns is the cave at Machpelah where he buries his wife. So he doesn't ever own it, even though it's been promised to him by God. Hence, he floats around in a tent. But what he's looking forward to is a city. As I say, I'm just sort of curious as to whether he came from a city. Verse 11. and having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So again, what he's talking about is that the nomadic patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were seeking a homeland. They'd been promised one. They knew that they weren't going to possess it, but they continued on in faith, recognizing that their descendants would. I'm going to stop here because I'm not going to get through chapter 11. Would somebody like closing prayer?